it's good to be with you. I preached for uh, several years at the VA as a chaplain. We had services on Sunday morning, and uh, with the pandemic, of course, they shut down our services, and so I have been preaching there, and I am working part-time now, and the good news is I get to be with you on Sunday morning here. And so thank you for welcoming me, and you and the homes there, thank you for welcoming me into your home. At my age, um, I'm always open to healing. And I actually uh, told Miguel I experienced a healing during his ministry a couple weeks ago. And I'm always open to that. And the scriptures say, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Pray for one another. So I'm going to make some confession uh, to you this morning uh, to start out. It's not just what they call an AA verbal vomiting, um, but it's, there's a point to it. Because uh, in this little journey that I went through, that I discovered something that is at the heart of what I want to share with you today. Okay, and the uh, first confession, when I was uh, first a Christian, I was not a very good witness for Jesus Christ at all. In fact, uh, God was moving very powerfully in 1974 in my life and bringing a lot of miracles into my life and brought me into uh, tennis, and I was teaching tennis at the time at tennis club, and, and I was playing in a tournament in Saginaw, uh, Michigan, and there I was just overwhelmed with what God had been doing in my life, and so I in a YMCA room on May 30th, 1974, I gave my life to Jesus and uh, experienced a call to the ministry at the same time. However, I was still teaching tennis. And uh, on Tuesday night, we had a men's club, and uh, men would come in, play doubles. We had a great time. And one of, uh, one of the men there said, Steve, can we get some breakfast? And I said, sure. So we got together for some breakfast on Saturday morning and had some chit-chat about getting to know one another. And then... Uh, he started to share Christ with me, and I could tell that he was trying to convert me to Jesus Christ. And I told him, I said, well, Dick, I said, I gave my life to Jesus. And uh, I still recall the shocked look on his face. I mean, <laughs> if you see someone that just sits there with their mouth open, like, and they couldn't believe it at all. He couldn't believe it. He was kind enough not to say any words, but that look was all he had to say. And that was uh, convicting. You know, sometimes you don't need words, you just need a look. And uh, Dick and I got together every week and went through the Navigator program, and that got me started in uh, discipling, a very good friend of mine. Uh, when I was in seminary, um, I married uh, Kathy in 1975 while I was in seminary. And, uh, of course, you know her story. She was married before and lost her first husband in Vietnam. And uh, so right away in 1975, I had a five-year-old son. And so uh, instant, instant husband, instant son. Uh, also, I was commuting to seminary. I drove an hour and a half there in the morning, an hour and a half back every day uh, to seminary. Uh, we bought a house. We had a dog. Uh, things were just kind of overloading. And I, um, I felt perfectly justified in being a little edgy, a little irritable, and expecting some more things out of life. And so I saw a counselor there. At, uh, in seminary, uh, Dr. Moline, and I spent about 20 minutes telling him all of the things that I was uh, concerned about, and he listened very patiently, didn't say a word, and after 20 minutes, he said, Steve, he says, maybe you just need to grow up. And that wasn't very encouraging to me at all. I said, what a novel concept. I, I don't know how to do that. And uh, it was probably one of the best counsel that I ever had. When I had my first church in Pengrove, California, outside of Petaluma, we had an amazing group of people. It was just a phenomenal ministry. I often look back and, and think how unique it was, what a special blessing 
uh, the people that we had there. And I was there for 14 years. The first nine years uh, were excellent. Everything was moving well. And, and uh, the last five years, starting in 1989, uh, through some mistakes that I made, that things started to get a little bit more sour. It had nothing to do with the people or the circumstances or what was going on there. It was a change within me. And after um, 14 years, I decided to re resign. And we came up here in Medford. God works all things together for good. And took that incident and brought us here, which has been a tremendous blessing for us for 27 years now. And uh, uh, I look back on that and I, I say, um, there was something wrong. There's something missing in all of these experiences that I had. Something just wasn't quite right that resulted in that. And never knew exactly what all that was. You know, you grow in prayer and you grow in the word and you try to, you know, worship the Lord and try to move into these areas. But there's some things that just hold us back and keep us from moving into those directions we'd like to go. And a, a veteran came to me. I thanked him later for, for uh, mentoring me. He came to me over at the VA and he said, Chappie, uh, that's a, an endearment. It's not a mockery, but I think, so. I think it is anyway. <laughs> Call Chappie. I never asked anybody about that. I assume it's an endearment. So Chappie, he says, I've got four major addictions that I'm dealing with. And he says, I really need help with repentance. Can you help me? And he was making that connection between breaking off these things that were blocking him in his walk with God with repentance. And uh, actually, I'll have to confess, I was very deficient in that. I kind of shied away from the word repentance. Uh, because it's often a word of mockery in our culture. They often look at evangelical Christians and say, repent, you know, and uh, have a misunderstanding of that. And so I kind of shied away from that, and I actually say I didn't have a full understanding. But in my efforts to assist him, I got into the word about repentance. I discovered, I said, man, this is incredible. What a gift of grace that God's given to us to be able to move forward and to break off those things that hold us back and move in to repentance. And uh, so I wanted to take us on a little journey this morning and uh, take a look at this very important doctrine. You know, it's an amazing thing. Uh, if you asked me before I got my little red car, my Honda, I drive a, a red Honda Fit, and if you'd asked me how many red cars there were in my block, I could, honestly couldn't tell you. I would say maybe two or three. After I got the red car, then I started seeing red cars everywhere. We had 13 red cars on our block, and I never knew that. I never saw it. And so there's something where we grasp hold of something, we possess it, and then you see it everywhere. And it's that way with repentance. It's everywhere in Scripture. It's in Jesus' words. It's in God's word. It's one of the most amazing ways to correct the things that are going wrong in our lives and to bring us into that relationship with Christ that we really want and really enjoy. So I want to take a little journey here. Let's go off-road for a bit and go to uh, Corinth. And uh, if you know the letter of uh, Corinthians, the first Corinthians, that there were a lot of problems in the church that, that uh, Paul addressed. There was a tolerance of an incestual relationship. There was abusing the Lord's Supper. There were marital difficulties. They were suing one another in court rather than dealing it with brothers and sisters in the church. There were all of these things that were majorly wrong. They were one-upmanship. They cared less about the believers and the seekers in church, and they were prophesying over one another. It's just chaos and disorder. Paul addresses that. We feel that that was probably about 55 A.D. 
he sent Titus. They had to send the letters with someone in those days. No email or faxing or anything like that. Sent Titus a letter. Titus came back and reported that there was a good return, a good response. And so uh, if we just turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verses 8 through 12, Paul's response to their response. Let's uh, take a look at that if Dave has that up there. Yeah, let's go to verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. Paul's getting pretty excited about all this. What fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. His correction, his addressing these issues was a sign of his love and his desire for them to be all that they could be. And they responded. We assume this letter was written in 56 AD, one year later. How long do you think it would take for a church to correct all of these things? One year. They still had difficulties, but they were addressing those things. And it tells us some things about repentance. Repentance, first of all, in the Old Testament, it means turning. And there are two uh, word groupings. One means turning to God, emphasizes that aspect. The other aspect emphasizes turning from the world and from the sin. In other words, it's a, a change of direction. And it's not just something we think about, you know, a little metal box called our thought life, but it's the whole person that moves in a different direction, turns away from this and towards that. And that's repentance. And in the New Testament, it uh, has a sense of a change of mind. And again, it's not just that I'm thinking differently about it, or I agree with you. It's that I'm changing my whole direction. And uh, we can see what that means if we turn, if we look at uh, God, it's a godly Godly thing, actually, to be able to repent. Not that God has to repent of evil. It says he is no man that he has to repent. But from the standpoint of turning, of changing his mind, God is willing to do that. It's a phenomenal thing when you think about God doing all he could, and he could just drive something through, and he's God, he could do that. But when he sees something, he will turn. I want to just share Jonah uh, 3.10. You know, God sent Jonah to Nineveh. The Assyrians were the major block to Israel. Jonah was called by God to prophesy expansion and blessing on Israel, which occurred. And then God tells him, now I want you to go to the Assyrians and I want you to bless them. He wasn't willing to do it because it's counter to the prophetic word that he got initially, which was to give blessing to Israel. And he said, now you're telling me to go to, my, go to our enemies that are harassing us and are the bane of our existence and to bless them. He, you can see why he'd be a little reluctant. God got him there, he gave the message, and then God said this in Jonah chapter 
and God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. God defines repentance. It's a turning away from my thought, from my attitude, and from my actions. That's repentance. Paul said something similar in Acts chapter 26, 20, if we take a look at that scripture when he's giving his defense with King Agrippa. And Paul says this, but declared first to those in Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. He emphasized both of those aspects of repentance, that I turn to God, but I also turn from evil and I do the works that evidence that particular turning. That's repentance. And we have to be careful when we talk about conversion. It's not just coming to Christ. It's not just accepting Christ, but it's also a turning and replacing Jesus with those things that I did in, in my life. It's a turning away from things, and we have to emphasize that. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter was preaching, he was talking all about Jesus and how he was the, uh, the blessed, the prince, the one that was crucified. And they were cut to the heart, and they said, what do I do? What do we, what do, we do now? And he said in verse 38, he said, then Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for remissions of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Many of us know this verse. The next verse says this. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So the message he had was not only to be saved eternally and saved from the wrath to come, but to be saved from the values and the principles that this world is antagonistic with to God. Both of those are involved. Godly repentance is imperative for God's people. It's an act of love for God to provide a way to turn, for us to turn and for him to turn and to restore a relationship that's violated or less than what it can be. Jesus, you may remember, used the word Repentance, 25 times it's recorded. The very first word he mentioned when he was preaching in power was repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we get to the end of the book in Revelation where he's addressing the problems within the church. And he says his corrective is repent and do what you did at first. Turn, come towards me and away from those things that are barriers in the relationship. I personally believe that when he talks about the narrow gate, he says, you know, the gate is narrow that leads to life and the way is wide that leads to destruction, that he's talking about repentance because he's the door, of course, but in order to get through the door and get into the fullness and enter into all that God has, that we have to leave behind those things, the baggage from the wide way. I told a story last night. I said, I remember it was a trip we were taking. We were trying to get the kids ready. You know how some of those days are. Everything's going wrong, and there's delays, and there's problems, and stresses, and, you know, let's do this, let's do that. And it can be kind of a messy day. And so I was getting a little impatient, and so I just said, I had four bags there. So I picked all four bags up, 
And I said, I'm going to take these out to the car and get them packed up. Picked them all up, but I had a little problem because I couldn't get through the door. <laughs> because I tried to put them with two bags, and the other two bags would hit the door jam. So I had to leave two bags there and go out and carry in order to get through the door. And it's this idea in repentance that I've got to leave the baggage that I brought in from the world. I've got to leave that behind so I can get through that narrow door. I believe that Jesus is talking about repentance and faith. That's how we get through the door into eternal blessings with him. Godly repentance also, you notice how, mentioned, how many times Paul mentions the word sorrow. He says, godly repentance includes a sorrow. One of the favorite studies I did of all time was the emotions of Christ. You know, Christ was emotionally rich. You know, he's not just stoic. I've seen presentations of Christ where he's just a serious, intense person, you know. But the scriptures say that he was troubled unto death. He got frustrated. How much longer do I have to be with you? He rejoiced to them. It says the hallelujah. That means to twirl and to shout. He rejoiced greatly. He was free like David, dancing before the ark. Jesus had no, no complications in holding back on certain emotions because of cultural uh, mandates or whatever. He's emotionally free. He feels he feels with indignation when he wanted to heal the person on the Sabbath. And he looked around the Pharisees with indignation. He seethed when he saw their attitude towards it. He has great feelings towards us. He responds to us emotionally. God is extremely emotional. Just read about his problems he's having with Israel and them going the other way and the sorrow that there is in his heart over that. He feels in response to what we're doing. Paul was aware of this. And he said that when, there's a, when corrections are given or there's a problem that's posed, there can be a worldly sorrow, which is, oh, gosh, I'm really sorry I got caught about this. I'm sorry I made so many problems. I wish I could just do it and not have all these consequences. Or it could be a shame or a guilt. It could be uh, something where we hang on to those things that we've done in the past and we can't get away from them. We keep beating ourselves up for it. I deal with, with vets on a daily basis that are still bashing themselves daily for the sins of the past and for those things. If I had more time, but just to take a moment, that we have to repent of that because when we ask for confession or when we confess our sins, Jesus' blood covers over the sins, right? Jesus has dealt with the sin problem because he covers over. That's the word atonement. He's our atonement. He covers over the sin. And I have this picture of, of a sin that's like a black mark on a path and we confess it, and the blood of Jesus just covers over that particular sin. And when God comes in and looks at it and stands in a spot, he no longer sees the sin, but he sees that which represents his character, which is sacrificial love. And he cannot see that sin anymore. And that's why we're righteous, is because the blood of Jesus has conveyed a sacrificial love that God can relate to and say, he's just like me, she's just like me. And when we keep digging up those sins from the past and those wrongdoings that we've confessed, in a way, as the scriptures say, it's an insult to the work of Jesus Christ to cover over those and not see them again. You can ask the Lord, Lord, I repent. I've got to get out from constantly being held back by the mistakes of the past and move forward. Godly sorrow 
is focused on God. It's to see his emotional response to the things that we do wrong or to our sin or to our errors or to the things that hold us back. He feels it. He feels it. It's hard to look someone that you've offended in the, straight in the eye. I'll tell you a lot of examples of that. We just kind of look down. And it's just very difficult to look at someone straight in the eye. God's, God wants his smile to be upon us. He wants us to embrace his smile and have no barriers to that where we can look right in his eye and have full expectation, anticipation of what he has for each one of us, for the church and for our nation. The Puritans used to call repentance the gift of tears because it meant I'm not just sorrowful for how this makes me feel. I'm sorrowful that God is so sorrowful over watching what I'm doing and what I'm engaged in. Bob Pierce would say, break my heart with the things that break the heart of God. World vision. I want to know how God feels. I want to see his face. I want to see his smile. I want to know if he's hurt. I want to know if he's, if he's sorrowful. I know if he wants something more from me. I, I want to see in his face that kind of relationship with him. There's a young man that was struggling with pornography, and he told his teacher, he said, and he says, when the wife and kids leave and I'm all alone, he says, then I go to the computer. He says, I can't stop it. He said, and the teacher said, do you believe in the omnipresence of God? And the young man said, yes, I absolutely do. He said, then you're not alone. In that room is God. And how is he feeling about what you're doing? Is his word of approval on that or disapproval? And if we had this consciousness of what we call the practice of the presence, where, where I'm conversing with my spouse or when I'm talking with my son on the phone or when I'm engaged in relationships here, if I could see what God is doing at that moment, he's right there, listening, watching. And if that would stop me up short and say, God, I repent of that, forgive me for that. How different our relationship would be when we're brokenhearted about God, what does it say? God is near to the brokenhearted. And when he sees that response on our part, that he is willing to turn. Godly repentance, you see, confronts the face of God. Second Chronicles 7.14, we speak it all the time. We're concerned about our nation. He says, if my people call by many shall humble themselves and pray and what? Seek my face and forsake their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven. I believe there's been a lot of prayer. I believe that there's been a lot of seeking God. There's a lot of worship. But has there been within the body of Christ in America a turning from our evil ways, our wicked ways? And when he sees that, then he will turn and he'll bless his nation once again. And I don't believe it's an issue of a political party or who takes this office or takes that office. The whole issue for us as the people of God is that God takes the throne over this country again. And he says in order for him to have the throne and for him to smile again to be on this nation, it will be that God's people are repenting and turning from their wicked way and say, God, we want only for you to be the one in charge. And he says when he sees that, that he will turn and his smile will be on on, on the nation. And I almost see this vision of, of him turning his face and like the sun rising in the morning 
And, and as the sun comes up the dawn, it begins to flood over all of the darkness. And I see that with God, that he looks over this nation and says, when I see my people seeking my face, they want to know how I feel about 63 million babies aborted. They want to know how I feel about all the sexual leniency that there is within the church. When they feel that and respond to that, repent, then my smile will be upon this nation. And all these areas of darkness that we complain about and criticize and talk about and plan for will be swept in with the light of Christ. And this nation will once more be a nation under God. I just see holy convocations everywhere. I see what they call in the Old Testament solemn assemblies. In city after city after city after city with the church coming together and saying, we need to get together with God. It's not which party we offend or agree with. It's whether we agree with God and whether we're on his side. And he will take care of all of those things. He said, I will heal your land. Solemn assemblies everywhere throughout this nation. If that happens, then my hope would be stirred that this nation is being corrected by God. You seek my face and forsake your wicked ways. In this Old Testament, they refer to God hiding his face when he sees sin. I've hid my face, he says in Isaiah 54, 8. He has turn away from it. His holy nature is just... If we can imagine someone so holy and so pure and so righteous that to see the, the kind of things that we take for granted, he has to turn from it. But he says, I will turn my face to you and I will shine. And that's a benediction. He sang that last night. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you. What does that mean? And that means that there's a connection. I wish I could go more in depth with this. But there's a connection between the face of God shining and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Scripture after scripture indicates when there's a repentance, there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And there's a sense of God's face being related to the power of the Holy Spirit, the outshining, the glory of God. Many of these scriptures of which I've read to you begin with repentance and end with the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. A fresh baptism, times of refreshing, Peter said, repent, that times of refreshing may come to you. The beginning point is for us to turn to God away from it, and then he will turn and pour out his spirit upon us in greater measure. As we mentioned, godly repentance requires action. It's not only a different way of thinking, a different attitude, but it's a different way of living, behaving, action. And these are some actions that I just put down that we can consider for repentance. One is obviously addictions to substance. It might be shopping, it might be gambling, it might be sex, it might be a substance, it might be any of those things. It might be a critical attitude towards others, a negativity. I always find something wrong with everything that's going on. It might be that. Or it's an offense towards God. He just didn't do what I thought he was going to do. He didn't come through the way I thought. And I, I hold this, this grudge against God for the things of the past. I need to repent. You might be going a little deeper and looking at the root of these things, these actions. Or it might be the stubbornness 
There might be a little spirit of rebellion in me, or it might be this independent spirit that I just kind of go my own way. It might be a control issue. I want to be in control of everything. And look at the root. It might be repenting of not only the actions, but the lack of things, the lack of love for my neighbor, the lack of love for the missions and for the rest of the world. I shared last night, I'll be very transparent with you, with all the political things that are going on. There are certain national figures and political figures that just rile me to the core. The things that they believe, the things that they say, things that they lie about, it just really riles me. And I would enter into the fray, get memes and gifts and all these things, you know, that put down and criticize one another. And actually, I was uh, kind of enjoying that because you kind of feel kind of right, you know, when I criticize someone who's wrong. And then I remembered Saul, and God was speaking to me about that. He said, how much did they hate Saul while he was tearing apart the, but he was my servant and became an apostle. So the national figure, the political figure that we are detesting today may be the one sitting in church and may be the one on fire for the Lord next week or next month. God knows. And so the mission was don't criticize, pray for them. Even if you consider their enemies, I like what John MacArthur said. He said, they're not our enemies, they're our mission field. And that we, we pray for them and we, we bless them. Jesus said, even if they were your enemies, to do good to them and to, and to pray for them and to love them. It completely changed. I had to repent and say, Lord, I repent. I'm not going to do it anymore. It might be repenting of core beliefs. I work with our veterans that carry with them the words that were spoken to them when they were younger. You'll never amount to anything. I can't tell you how many vets in addiction heard that from their, their mom or from their dad. You'll never amount to anything. They did a survey at Pelican Bay Prison, and they found that 75% of the prisoners there had heard from either a parent or from a significant authority figure, you're going to end up in jail one day. That's exactly where they ended up. These core beliefs are really strong. If I believe that I'm, that I'm so shy that God can't use me, then we're holding God back and what he can you do for us? You need to repent of that. You need to repent of the poor self-esteem and the low self-esteem that puts me down and says, oh, I can't do that. God would never use me to do that. You'd be amazed. And it holds God back from what he can do. If you have any view of yourself as less than a royal prince or a royal princess of the Most High God, you need to repent of that because that's our identity in him. That's what he's called us to be. And we can repent of our ties to identities that limit us. Remember when Jesus came to Peter and Peter was all sorrowful about his denial of the Lord. And after the resurrection, Peter said, let's go fishing. It's often the case that when we're spiritually a little bit low, we go to things that are comfortable to us. We go to things that we're used to, things that we derive our identity from. He's a fisherman. And so Jesus came to him and said, do you love me more than these, Peter? And I believe that he's talking not about different apostles. He wouldn't compare disciples with disciples. Like, do you love me more than John? But he's looking to all the boats and the, and the nets and the ships. He was on shore at that time. Did you see... Peter, do you love me more than these? Because I've called you to be a shepherd. Feed my sheep. 
It's a change of identity. And we may have to repent about those things that we view as our identity in order to move into the fullness of what God has for us. There's so much to share. I think I've gone over my time. Um, I hope some, I, I need to repent of that. <laughs> and, and hopefully get forgiveness. Yeah, for, yeah. But I want to share one last thing, is that when I get to heaven, when you get to heaven, there'll be only one thing that matters at that time, and that will be the smile of God. And well done, my good and faithful servant. All these other concerns we have will not be there at that time. That's it. I want to share this scripture with you, if uh, Dave can put that on in closing here, 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Therefore, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. God is moving us to be like him. He is more than eager to turn and bring us into the likeness of Christ as we repent and turn to him. I would just advise you, can I share one more story? Do I have time for this? No? No, okay. Hmm? Okay, all right. Bertha Smith. Bertha Smith, very quickly, was a missionary just before the communists took over China. And uh, when there was an uprising as the communists were taking over China, uh, that she was moved to the coastal cities. And while they were there, the missionaries in the coastal cities, they said they, they, they dealt in days of such intense prayer and repentance. They, they had waves of repentance upon them like they'd never known before. And shortly after that, as is the pattern, when I repent, God pours out his spirit. Revival comes after repentance. There is a revival in that area, and many of those Chinese came to Christ before the communists took over. They said to Bertha, you're too old, you need to retire. She said, no, I can't retire. And so she became an itinerant. She went from church to church, talked with pastors. And her message was to share what happened in China, but also to encourage repentance. And one pastor said this, just a quick testimony, he said this. She got me in a corner and got right in my face and said, the time has come when you must get earnest about repentance. Get a pad and several pencils, get to a private place, get on your knees, and ask God to show you all your sins. Write everything down and don't leave until God is finished with you and bring me the list tomorrow. <laughs> mm -hmm. One pastor said, well, this would be easy. I'll just... You know, this would just take me a few moments. Took his pencils and pad. He came back with sheets of paper. And she was satisfied, I mean, not to view it, but just to know that he had spent his time with the Lord. She fruited that. And then she says, repent earnestly of all these sins, burn this record, and be done with these sins forever. It's not reducing it. It's cutting it out completely from my life. I did that personally. I took Bertha's advice, and I have a long list. Your list probably won't be as long as mine. Mine's huge. And repented of all those things. And I can tell you from personal testimony that there have been a few, few times in my life where I've had the freedom and the closeness with God and the sense of anticipation that he has turned his face. I can't drive in a car without seeing the face of God now. I sit down and read, and his face is there. I don't have to work it up. He's just, his face is there. God is pleased to shine on us when we repent. And I know he has that for this body of Christ. I just imagine 
the outflow of joy, the outflow of, of mercy, the outflow of revival that will come in greater measure when each one of us gets together with God and repents. You say amen? Amen. amen. I advise you to do that. I won't take the time now, but to spend time with the Lord and say, Lord, everything that's in the way, get it out so I can move forward. Amen, amen. Thank you for letting me in the house. Mm -hmm. Let's stand. Boise, that, I think that's the best teaching I've ever heard on, on the subject of repentance as a means of grace. So we appreciate both you sharing your journey and so clearly expounding the Holy Scriptures to us. Really a blessing, wasn't it? So let's put our hands on our hearts. and Father, we see, pray you'd seal this to us and may you continue to speak and help us to know in our own journey um, to pursue this very practical application of seeking you about stuff that we need to repent of. We praise you that it is a means of grace. It's, a, it's an on-ramp to the freeway of supernatural heavenly joy and peace and love. It's an on-ramp to your, to your grace, to your undeserved favor, repentance. Thank you, God. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the way you spoke to us this morning and will continue to speak. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. My friends, have a great day. We love you. May God's favor, safety, and good health be on you and your family as you, as you go. We'll see you next time.